the principal issue is um, that I think that, uh, especially since 2010, uh, the, the impact uh, on our field from external, often financial sources, uh, has been increasing and that has been to the detriment uh, of outcomes in IVF uh, best characterized uh, by the fact that life birth rates in IVF, which until 2010 have progressively improved uh, since 2010, uh, have been plateaued and, and in more recent years have actually been declining. It's the same old song about PGT since I've been in the field, or at least working in the periphery of it from my perspective. But I admit that I can't judge the quality of the debates. I can't even assess the arguments properly because I'm not a clinician. What interests me about this topic is because of my vantage point as a lay person, it seems like there hasn't been a shift. There hasn't been a consensus. Dr. Gleischer is from the very first generation of fertility specialists. He did his residency at Mount Sinai in New York. He went to Rush Medical College in Chicago to work on immunology and microbiology. And then he founded his practice, the Center for Human Reproduction, in 1981. With Dr. Gleischer, I talk about IVF add-ons. We talk about the huge differences in practice patterns. We talk about the failures of the early attempts at rolling up IVF centers in the 1990s. And we zoom in on the issue of this efficacy or lack thereof of PGT. I need to be careful of how I summarize Dr. Gleischer's arguments because I'm at risk of getting it wrong, but I think it's safe to say that he feels that the scientific literature does not support the use of PGT anywhere near the utilization that it is being used at, in fact, that it could be harmful, and that many of the reasons for PGT's wide implementation are from economic and social pressures. Dr. Gleischer says that Big Pharma has been replaced by the genetics testing companies and the MSOs, the fertility networks that are the biggest benefactors of PGT, as the biggest exhibition spaces at annual meetings. There's a limit to how much I can press Dr. Gleischer in this interview. Business people with no scientific and no medical training should not be doing that. That's your job. What I am interested in is why isn't there a consensus and is it the case and how is this impacting the business of reproductive medicine? There may be people that want to argue the counter argument. They're welcome on the show. It's very likely that you're going to hear genetics companies sponsoring this show. Heck, I would even let a genetics company sponsor this episode, but I'm not going to be the guy to moderate that debate, not on this show. I could have someone moderate the debate if I felt like it was going to be meaningfully different from what we've heard at the conferences. I'd be open to that if some of you want to be guests on either side of the argument. But first, you should hear Dr. Gleischer's argument, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation with him on Inside Reproductive Health. Dr. Gleischer, Norbert, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure being here. The pleasure is mine. You and I have known of each other for a while, but we finally made each other's acquaintance. Someone mentioned to me that you had mentioned our newsletter in your newsletter. I became aware of your newsletter and read one of your articles. And such is the compounding effect, the compounding network effect of content creation. And one of the things that caught my eye had to do with the perceived P overuse of PGT, and you can correct me if I'm not characterizing it correctly, uh, we'll set that up. 
But I noticed a concern for empiricism and transparency in medicine, and I want to go through that argument with you today. But first, am I characterizing it correctly? You are characterizing it perfectly, and I would say that the concern about transmission of information has increasingly become a, a central issue at our center, in our internal discussions, in our research, in our evaluation of the literature, and has not the least been uh, a big impetus uh, for the creation, or I should say the expansion of our newsletter. Because if you may have noticed, a very important section of our monthly newsletter is a review of the literature that relates to reproductive medicine in general. It can be general medical articles, but there must be a relationship to reproductive medicine and research in our field. Uh, and that section of our newsletter has really grown the most because the response to it has been really phenomenal. Uh, and so uh, we are really addressing this issue very aggressively. What would you say the issue is specifically? The principal issue is um, that I think that, uh, especially since 2010, uh, the, the impact uh, on our field from external, often financial sources, uh, has been increasing, and that has been to the detriment uh, of outcomes in IVF, uh, best characterized uh, by the fact that live birth rates in IVF, which until 2010 have progressively improved uh, since 2010, uh, have been plateaued and, and in more recent years have actually been declining. And this is not only seen in the U.S., uh, but around the world uh, and seems to correlate uh, with the addition of ad, so-called add-ons. Uh, this is a term created by British colleagues several years ago uh, describing new things introduced into IVF practice without proper prior validation studies. And uh, probably the, the most significant or one of the most significant is uh, indeed PGT, specifically PGTA. I'm, I'm not concerned about uh, other PGTA formats. Why 2010, in your view? Was there a catalyst event, as far as you can tell? Did it just happen to be around that time? Well, it's, uh, uh, it's uh, really the acceleration of what I and some of our publication have called the industrialization of uh, IVF practice. I don't know if you know that, uh, but I was uh, probably the first uh, to, to try to roll up IVF clinics uh, in the late 1990s during the physician management practice uh, bubble, as it is now known. Um, and uh, 
very quickly uh, learned uh, how difficult it was and what the arising problems uh, become when 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 you develop uh, chains of fertility centers and try to integrate them and try to establish best practice uh, all of those things that uh, really since 2010 have again become vogue and have accelerated. I mean, I don't have to tell you because I've gotten a lot of my recent information from your newsletter uh, about what has been happening over the last uh, 12 years, 13 years uh, worldwide in terms of roll-ups and creation of of large uh, fertility clinic networks. I think that has played a significant role. I don't want to take us too far off, but I do think it's germane to the conversation as far as discussing IVF centers' workflows and different providers' workflows. What were the greatest difficulties at that time? You said you were among the first in the 1990s to attempt to roll up of IVF centers. You very quickly found out the difficulties. What were the greatest difficulties? Uh, Huge differences uh, in practice patterns. Uh, between individual centers um, for, for a variety of, uh, of reasons uh, and a certain conservatism amongst doctors, uh, meaning uh, resistance to, to, to change. Uh, and uh, then, uh, of course, uh, economic uh, considerations. Um, The fact that the more you intervene in a physician's established practice pattern, uh, the more of a decline in productivity you will encounter. And so uh, it it becomes kind of a vicious circle. Uh, It is very, very Difficult, at least that was our experience, um, to to change uh, a physician's practice pattern. And so, if you acquire uh, an infertility practice that had a very distinct or a different practice pattern, uh, you will be successful in changing that practice pattern, at least in our experience, then only at the cost of losing significant revenue. As specifically as you can, please give us examples of these types of practice patterns. Well, uh, they're, they're almost unlimited. If we go uh, into, into pre-implantation genetic testing, for example, uh, which in those days already existed, uh, was called uh, pre-implantation genetic screening, um, you know, some people then already believed in it, uh, others strongly opposed it. Uh, I think uh, this discrepancy, if anything, uh, has uh, increased over the years, but also the utilization of uh, PGTA has greatly increased. And uh, you just have IVF clinics out there that till today swear that. Uh, it's, it's the best thing that ever happened to IVF. And then there are others like us uh, who feel that 
uh, not only is PGTA uh, useless for most patients in terms of outcomes, but for many patients, it actually does the opposite of what is claimed it does and, and actually reduces their pregnancy chances. So uh, this is probably one of the, the most dominant uh, subjects where this kind of discourse exists today in our field. But there are many other major subjects, uh, routine uh, culture of embryos to blastocyst stage, for example. Uh, that uh, even ASRM considers that uh, today uh, the routine embryology practice in IVF uh, But when you look at uh, what is really behind it, uh, you you have to question the routine uh, embryo culture to blastocyst stage for everybody because the people who initially promoted this uh, did their studies um, in a very highly selected good prognosis patient population. Uh, and subsequent studies who tried to show the same improvements in general populations have universally failed. Yet, we as a, as a field have accepted the claim that routine embryo culture to blastocyst stage improves, uh, Im, Im, improves uh, pregnancy outcomes in IVF. That is categorically false. Yet still... Like with PGTA, this is uh, the main uh, treatment that uh, is being pursued uh, in this country for most IVF cycles. Are you familiar with these very large consulting firms that they're retained by companies in lots of different sectors, healthcare, energy, commodities, and they have Rolodexes of experts in different verticals, and then they call you and they, they pay you you know, for an hour at a time to talk to some unidentified group on the other end. They ask all of these questions. Are you familiar with those groups at all? I'm, I'm familiar with them because I get a lot of calls asking, uh, asking me to set up meetings. Uh, I rarely do it, but yes, I'm familiar with them. So I get these calls too, and I take some of them sometimes. And I often get the question about PGT, about its implementation, about its use, and uh, if if the doctors view it as an add-on or if they view it as necessary. And I tell them I'm not qualified to answer the question. I I say the only thing that I'm qualified to remark on is that. I've been showing up since 2014, 2015, and it doesn't look like there's any more consensus than there was eight years ago. It seems to me like it's the same debate. And from my vantage point, it doesn't look like there's any kind of consensus. That's what I tell them. I can't speak. I'm not a a clinician, so I can't speak on the issue of, of PGT itself. But you said that some people, even back when it was still called PGS, thought that it was it was the great they swore by it and and some people say today that it's the best thing to happen to IVF where uh, others like yourself believe that there's no evidence for that why why isn't there a consensus if it's the same darn debate at ASRM and and PCRS well first off maybe I'm making an assumption is it the same debate that's been going on for years and two if it is uh, how has consensus not been able to emerge? It is the same debate. Uh, 
I would argue that there has been a shift. I think there's increasing recognition that the, that the hypothesis of PGTA, which is that by removing supposedly chromosomally abnormal embryos from the embryo, embryo cohort before embryos are being transferred into the uterus, will improve pregnancy chances for patients. Uh, I think that there's increasing doubt about this hypothesis. So that, from my vintage point, uh, is, is a positive development. At the other end, uh, as you correctly stated, uh, there are those who are holding on, and if anything else, even have become more aggressive in, in defending uh, PGTA. And I cannot speak to their motives, um, but um, uh, several months ago, I, I spoke uh, to, to, to one of those economists uh, who called me, and he made a startling comment to me um, in our discussion of the field. And his comment was, uh, if PGTA where to disappear tomorrow, a third of IVF centers uh, would have to close or at least to restructure. And I found that uh, that interesting uh, because what, what uh, he meant to say was that the profitability of IVF in the U.S., uh, is obviously marginal. I mean, this is not a, a hu not an, an industry with huge profit margins. And uh, he suggested that uh, in in many IVF centers, that profit margin comes from PGTA, and that without PGTA, there would be no profit and maybe even loss. And and this, this makes sense when you think that PGTA is not covered by insurance. And so uh, as, uh, as a cash payment on top of what IVF centers are getting uh, from insured patient coverage, uh, this is a, a significant addition to the average cycle revenue. And if that were to disappear, because let's say, for example, the FDA comes out with a statement that it considers uh, PGTA uh, inappropriate in certain circumstances, that would have an enormous economic impact uh, on, on, on the field. So you cannot ignore that, uh, but yet at the other side, uh, there are people who who see PGTA as a religion. Um, you know, uh, there are people who are just believers, and uh, they are not convinced uh, by studies. Uh, they are not convinced by opinions of people who are much smarter than I am. Uh, and they just stick to 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 their opinions. Uh, so the motivations are open for discussion. 
You can't speak to their motivations, but at this point, you should be able to speak to their arguments because you've been on the other side of it for many years. What are their arguments in the best way that you can represent them? Their arguments have been shifting over the 20 plus years uh, that this procedure has been promoted. Uh, the, the, the original argument of uh, embryo testing was that it would improve pregnancy and live birth rates and would reduce uh, miscarriage rates. That has been dismissed uh, over the years by various uh, studies and has been acknowledged by ASRM in in policy statements by ESHRA, the European uh, counterpart of ASRM, uh, both uh, in repeated statements have concluded that there has been no evidence to show that it really improves outcomes. And so as it became harder and harder to make the argument for improvements in outcomes, uh, the, the rationale shifted. It shifted to, okay, it, it, makes, uh, uh, it improves outcome maybe in some subgroups. And first it was in younger people, and now it is in older people. And again, uh, I don't want to go into technical details, but uh, those, in my opinion at least, those arguments uh, are, are, are incorrect and are contradicted by, by many studies. Uh, then the argument became, yeah, it increases, it still reduces miscarriage rates. That was also contradicted by studies. Uh, then the argument uh, became, yeah, but, uh, but it helps with single embryo transfer, which is, a, again, another subject that deserves separate discussion because uh, this is also an add-on uh, that, in our opinion, uh, is, is non-logical uh, to do single embryo transfer on every patient, in our opinion, doesn't make any sense, but that is, again, an opinion that has evolved. And so the, the pro-PGA crowd uh, argued that by testing the embryos and selecting uh, a normal embryo, it helps with single embryo transfer, uh, pregnancy, and live birth rates. Again, uh, studies have shown that that is not true, in my opinion. But what is even more important than disproving their argument for potential benefits, with, which have shifted so much over the years, is that in parallel, there has been increasing evidence that PGTA harms patients and harms many patients in their pregnancy chance. And let me give you only one example for that, which is probably the strongest evidence for harm by PGTA. Uh, PGTA allegedly classifies embryos as transferable or not transferable. Meaning, yes, you can put them back in the uterus or you should not use them and even throw them out. And that's, that's the whole concept of PGTA. Now, we started to doubt this concept in 2014. 
And we, in 2014, started transferring so-called abnormal embryos, selectively, initially only so-called monosomies because they are known not to implant, and we transferred them under the theory, okay, if they are really monosomies, as PGTA claims, then they will not uh, implant, no big harm done. And lo and behold, we started seeing normal pregnancies. Now, uh, we just published a paper in human reproduction a few months ago, about 50 consecutive uh, such cycles uh, from uh, patients who shipped their embryos into our center because their own centers refused their transfer because they were by PGTA declared as abnormal. Uh, so if they could not have shipped them to us for transfer, those embryos would have been thrown out or not used. These patients had, even though they were very unfavorable with a median age of 42, which is quite old, these patients had uh, a pregnancy rate in the uh, mid-20s and a baby take-home rate in, in the high teens. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of patients out there who went through PGTA who ended up with uh, embryos that were declared as not transferable and who therefore don't have those embryos transferred. Yet, those embryos have a decent pregnancy and life, and, and life birth rate. And these 50 women who I just described they didn't even use all of their embryos yet. They still have over half of their embryos frozen here and therefore have even higher pregnancy chances sitting there that they are not used. Is there a better evidence for the potential harm of PGTA than that? I don't think so. Is that also not an argument, though, against the uh, uh, financial incentive argument of PGT, that if it is the result that we're not transferring embryos. Fertility centers aren't in the business of foregoing IVF cycles for nil. Is is there not a counter business argument to be made that uh, that there might be incentive to to not use PGT because uh, it may result in people not transferring some embryos? The issue of PGTA. Uh, and not transferring embryos leads to another problem. And that other problem is that a lot of women who go to through two or three IVF cycles and are told in every one of the IVF cycles that all of their embryos are chromosomal abnormal, the next message they're getting is, okay, your only remaining choice is to do donor eggs. Now, uh, donor eggs are a wonderful option because they have the highest uh, pregnancy chances of any IVF cycle that a uh, woman can have, because nothing can compete with 20 or 25-year-old eggs. But I always tell patients, and I think this is another thing that differentiates our center from, from many others, 
but I have seen very few, if any, women who came to us and said, hey, I want to get pregnant with donor eggs. Patients usually come to us uh, because they want to get pregnant with their own eggs. And therefore, we see uh, egg donation as a wonderful treatment, but only as a last resort. And that is not the opinion of many of our colleagues. Uh, they are very, very quick uh, in, in moving into egg donation with their patients. And when you look at national IVF data in the U.S., you therefore see very few patients after age 42, certainly 43, who still are going through IVF cycles with their own eggs. At our center, the median age of our patient population over the last four or five years has been 43 plus. So uh, I think that's a reflection of, of the, the different philosophy that is prevailing in the field uh, in most centers and, and how we look at what is happening in infertility practice today. If I dig any deeper there, I will leave my scope of competence <laughs> and, and, and won't be able to contribute. So I'll instead ask each of us to leave our scope of incompetence. Let's each step out of our pay grade for a moment and speculate that if it is the case that there is a financial incentive to increase PGT add-ons because of the increase of insurance or simply because PGT is usually cash pay. And then even if someone is covered via insurance, it allows for a cash pay option that's more profitable. If that is the case, should we expect to see that bear out one way or the other as we start to see payer provider models? So these groups that are Doing, are the payer and contracting with employers, as well as buying existing clinics, starting clinics de novo, shouldn't we see on one end of their model a correction or am I missing something? In other words, if, if it is to gain more, if it is to just to, to add more money, would they be would they be losing something because they're not getting that on the employer benefit side? Or uh, is it, in fact, better for them to add it on the employer benefit side because then they would be uh, they they would be getting better outcomes on their provider side? So that is a very complex question with an equally complex answer. Uh, the complexity comes from the question: What is benefit? And I think that is the core issue uh, of the whole discussion. Because in the old days of IVF, and as you can see from my hair or lack of hair, I am uh, still a member of the first generation of, of IVF uh, people uh, in those days in Chicago. When, when I started an IVF center, we were the first IVF center in the Midwest and, and one of the first in the country. In the early days of IVF, we all competed based on our outcomes. And that was healthy. 
today, outcomes almost no longer matter. Yes, they are being listed on, on national reporting sites, but very few patients uh, take them as a guide. And today, the competition is at a very different level. The competition today is uh, much more an economical uh, competition. It is a competition of academia versus private. It is a competition between networks versus individual practices. It's an economic competition. It is no longer a clinical competition. Uh, you know, uh, the, the issue now is to grow. The issue is no longer to, to, to get better pregnancy rates and, and, and better life birth rates. And I think that is at, at the core of, uh, of our current problems. Why do you suppose that is the case, though? Because there's still an incentive on the patient's end to pursue better outcomes at a lower cost. There is a, an incentive on the patient's side, on a, on a portion of the patient's side, because insurance coverage has increased, and therefore patients who are insured, their only incentive is to go to somebody who, who, who is in, in their insurance. The financial incentive uh, exists only among the non-insured. Paradoxically, the very poor and the very wealthy, and uh, and the very poor, unfortunately, simply can't afford it, and therefore they are not visible. They don't have a voice, and the very wealthy, uh, frankly, uh, most of them don't have to care. You know, they go. Uh, by where they feel they will get the best care. And what they perceive to be the best care, uh, not only in our field, uh, I think that is true every, in, throughout medicine, most information patients still get from their physicians. Yes, the Internet has become very powerful, and, and has much more influence than in the past. We are a good example because uh, if, if it wasn't for the Internet, we wouldn't have patients and their so-called abnormal embryos uh, from Europe and from Asia or God knows from where to us uh, for transfer. Uh, but, but the truth is still most information patients do get from their physicians. Let's talk a little bit about the information that physicians are getting. In your newsletter, you reference a scientist named Carl Bergstrom, who I believe is an evolutionary biologist, but Bergstrom wrote a piece where he gives eight rules uh, for combating medical misinformation and for reviewing literature and other sources of info, I suppose. And I'd like to go through each of those eight rules with you and see where uh, might apply in this case. And so the first rule that Dr. Bergstrom offers is be aware of the environment into which we release information. How would you describe the environment in which information 
about PGT is being released. I'll be happy to discuss uh, his very interesting article, which was based on an even more interesting book uh, he wrote a while back. Uh, but I want to, to preempt that uh, by making the point that the reason why he wrote that article uh, recently was his concern for misinformation that, uh, that permits uh, medicine, uh, medical publishing, medical information, etc., etc., uh, and partially driven, obviously, by our environment. And therefore, uh, we have, as he, as he correctly, I think, uh, makes the point, we have to be aware of the environment uh, in, into which we are releasing uh, information. Uh, if we are sending out the news release, it's a different story than when we are talking to a patient or when we are giving a talk to colleagues. Uh, I think that is very important, and and we need to recognize that uh, information needs to be delivered differently to 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 different audiences. The second rule is avoiding hype and tenuous claims of significance with regard to PGT. You talked about a few of those, and uh, summarize that. What is you talked about that they have changed, that the claims have changed. Uh, what are they now? That's a very good question. And I think it is a question that, <laughs> that nobody, nobody can answer. Let me give you an example that I think demonstrates that the best. Uh, I, and, and, and I'm just taking PGTA as an example again, uh, but it applies to other, issues, other subjects and other themes uh, equally. Uh, as I noted earlier, ASRM released uh, 10 years apart uh, two policy statements or opinions which clearly declared that uh, PGTA has not demonstrated any outcome benefits to those points. The, the first one was in 2008. The second one was in 2018. ESHRAE kind of similar. Yet, yet, uh, SRM just announced that they will update a release on the interpretation of PGTA results. Now, explain to me how a professional organization logically can provide a document explaining how the results of a test should be interpreted that that same organization claimed has no benefit. Where is the logic? And I think that's, again, uh, a good example of, uh, of that we need to be careful in what we are saying to the public. You know, we cannot say to the public, on the one hand, test X is useless, it doesn't give you any outcome benefits, and then go out and say, okay, but if you do test X, uh, interpret it in this in this way. The next rule is to recognize the importance of visualization in making figures 
stand on their own. Is there a way that's being used by the opposition argument in your view to represent the information that they're trying to get across? Yeah, I I think this is a this is a more or less technical issue. I'm not sure if it has the same importance as as the first two. Uh, It's more a technical issue in how you present data again. Uh, You can uh, you can manipulate everything, and and that includes how you how you present data and how you present data graphically. you know, you can you can present uh, a graph uh, in in different ways, uh, trying to 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 support your direct message without uh, without really being objective in presenting the data. And I think that's what the author said in this again the technical aspect. I'm not sure it's a major issue. Uh, here, Bergstrom talks about the vantage point of the writer of the literature trying to envision and head off in advance abuse of one's findings. But let's put ourselves instead in the position of the reader as opposed to the writer. What what abuses do you anticipate potentially coming if the arguments have changed multiple times? What will they change to next? That's a good question. Uh, moving the goalposts uh, does not only happen in, in medicine, as we know, they happen uh, in many other areas of our existence as well. Uh, uh, what comes next uh, is, is, is hard to predict. And again, I do not want to concentrate our conversation just on PGTA uh, because there are so many other issues uh, in, involved uh, as well. Uh, but uh, what I think he, he wants to say with, with, with that point is that what you write and what you read needs to be both done with caution. As a writer, you have responsibilities uh, towards your readers in how you present your data and how you present the interpretation of your data. It is not uncommon in our, in our medical literature, and again, I'm not referring only to reproductive medicine or only PGTA. I think it's an issue all over medicine in all specialties. It is not uncommon that authors perform a study produce reasonably reliable good results, but then in their own interpretation of their own results, lose it. And I think that's what he's referring to. And on the other side, to answer your question about the reader, I think readers need to be cautious, I would say, maybe even suspicious, not only in reviewing the study design, whether the design is appropriate or whether you selected patients or you did anything else otherwise inappropriate, but the the reader also needs to 
to think through the conclusions of the author. It is not appropriate, I, I don't think it is smart, to automatically assume that the author is right in his interpret or her interpretation of their own data. Okay, we need to be more critical, and that brings me back to what I said before. That's uh, a big part of our newsletter in reviewing uh, literature and providing our subjective, acknowledged subjective opinion about papers we think are of interest, both in the good and in the bad. When I see this happening, when I see someone give a very different interpretation of the data that they just that that they themselves compiled, it's very often not for economic reasons alone. It's very often for social reasons, and those two things overlap. They can compound each other, of course, because you can have socially and economically aligned incentives, and if you're really trying to achieve an aim, you do want those two things to to intertwine but even though they overlap it seems to me that the social is a lot more powerful and even if it's driven by economics it's the social not wanting to be a pariah that often leads someone to giving a very different interpretation from what they know to be fact do you see social pressure happening in the field and what is it absolutely absolutely there's social pressure uh, uh, at at every level, um, there are, I I can tell you that in the early days of our criticism of what then was still called PGS, I, I hate to come back always to to the same subject, uh, but uh, as an example again, in the early days, and I'm talking about 2008, we reanalyzed some early studies on PGS from Belgium investigators. And we concluded from those studies that uh, PGS probably doesn't work, and not only doesn't work, but uh, that it actually in older patients may be harmful. And we wrote a paper and sent it to every journal in our field and in the general medical literature and couldn't get it published until Swedish colleagues published in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine a study that showed exactly that point, much better than we would have shown in, in, in our paper. Uh, at which point I was called by, one of, uh, by the editor-in-chief of one of the journals that had rejected our paper and, uh, ha- and asked to resubmit, and they then published our paper subsequently. The point I'm making is that our review process in medicine, and again, this is not only in our field, this is universal. Our review process is based on what is called peer review. And peer review is uh, the review of your submission by your peers in that particular field in which you have submitted the paper. The editor of a journal takes your paper and sends it out to peer reviewers who are quote-unquote experts in that field. But what does that mean, that they are experts in that field? It means that they have an opinion in that field. And they usually have the predominant opinion in that field, because that's why they became experts in that field. 
And if you then come into this with, uh, with a paper that contradicts the predominant opinion, uh, you have a hard time, and, and it shouldn't surprise. And this is not only a problem in medicine. There, this is a problem in physics. This is a problem in, in, in every field of science. Experts are biased. And philosophers have known this for centuries. And our editors, unfortunately, very often still don't understand that. But let me kind of make one additional point. Uh, in, in next month's uh, newsletter, we are indeed discussing a paper that, that was recently published about the big scandal that has kind of shaken up the medical publishing industry recently. Because uh, I'm sure you're aware that one hot topic in, in science in general now are fake, fake papers, fake uh, photographs, uh, manipulations, etc. It's a, it's a major problem. Uh, a lot is coming out of China, unfortunately, but it's also coming out of local, uh, from local sources. So a very prominent journal, not in our field, uh, was notified uh, by some scientists about alleged fake uh, figures, fake photographs in a whole series of papers by a particular group of investigators, resulting in an investigation. But what that investigation revealed, which is at this point unresolved, it's still open and ongoing, what it, what it discovered is that the people who complained about those papers, which related to the introduction of a new Alzheimer's drug, had shortened the company which produced that Alzheimer's drug. So the people who claimed that the papers were fake really had an interest in bringing down the stock price of the drug that was supported by those papers. I am mentioning this here. Again, it did not happen in our specialty. I'm mentioning this here just to demonstrate how closely intertwined today medical opinion, medical messaging, medical publishing is with economic interests. And that is a major issue that we are not openly and transparently addressing yet. And that impacts what type of information the patients receive, what type of information lay people receive. Bergstrom's fifth rule is if submitting an unreviewed preprint, consider its reception by the public. Let me paraphrase this rule for, for the question of the example, which is when you're seeing patients come with information, where are they, where are the sources of incorrect information most common as far as you can tell? Well, today, unquestionably the internet. 
Uh, sure. Let's try to be a little bit. Let's just try to be a little bit more specific than that. Is it anecdotes from friends? Is it are they reading papers that they that have summaries that they just uh, they, they they can't read the scientific literature themselves and they're reading a couple lines from the summaries? Are they deliberately getting information marketed to them by companies? What do you see as the most common? I think uh, to answer your question, we have to s- separate information to whom? If we're talking about the public, uh, I don't have to tell you that. Uh, a, a long-standing controversy in the U.S. has been uh, advertising to the public about drugs, for example. We are one of the few countries in the world that permits direct advertising of medications to, 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 to the public. And there you have a direct influence of the public by drug manufacturers and whatever they want to present. Uh, That is not our primary concern. Our primary concern is, I think, maybe even more important because our concern is the influence on those who prescribe those drugs, on physicians. And and, and I think we underestimate here what is really going on. I find it ridiculous that, uh, that laws were passed that prohibit pharmaceutical companies uh, from bringing pens to doctor's offices when their reps are, or, or coffee cups to doctor's offices when when the reps uh, come by uh, to push uh, a, a, a drug, uh, while at the same time we're ignoring all the other influences that those drug companies have on us. You know, just look at what happened uh, during COVID and look at the, what happened uh, to the influence of drug companies on, on health policy during COVID. I mean, uh, we 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 are um, because of, of of the trees not seeing the whole forest. Yeah, is that because of the necessity of that influence, that financial influence, in order for the institutions to conduct their business? So the pens, the coffee cups, that's to individual providers. But I try to picture an ASRM where there was no pharma support you look at gold ruby diamond sponsors or or any conference that we had i suspect it would look very very different and where would that money come from where would the money come for for many of these uh and i and i don't ask that cynically i ask that truthfully i i, I appreciate that everything is a trade-off and that there could be benefit to those companies paying for events and studies and but uh it seems to me though that the reason why that may not have been regulated out in the same way that the coffee cups, the gifts, the individual correspondence was, is because could you even have an ASRM without that level of corporate spot? And I'm not picking on ASRM. It's true for any society, any conference. Absolutely. Absolutely. But your your observation is very astute. But can I ask you who you saw having the big exhibits at ASRM recently? It's still it's still the pharma company. They're not gone, but it's the pharma companies and it's genetic right. testing companies. And genetic testing companies. That's it. Needs it. Some st- more storage and more AI and 
that's exactly it. That's exactly it. So this is exactly what has been driving our field in recent years. ASRM, uh, and, and God bless them, and I can't blame them because they need the money, ASRM does not have the support anymore from the drug company, the drug companies, because of all the stupid laws that were passed in the uh, in 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 the last uh, two decades. Uh, and what happened? New blood came into the same business, and that blood are genetic testing companies. And again, not only in the infertility field. Go to the oncology conferences. Go to other conferences. The genetic industry is now the new drug industry in their influence on what is happening. And coming back to your earlier question about social pressures, they determine who the speakers are, who are invited. Uh, they determine, to some degree, uh, what medical journals are publishing. Just like the drug industry uh, was very, very influential, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Now, over the last decade, it has been increasingly uh, become the position of the genetic testing industry. And that is why there is so much genetic testing going on. I want to conclude with one summary question. Uh, Well, when we conclude, I will let you conclude with your thoughts. I want to conclude our summary of Bergstrom's rules by summarizing the last three, because they all have to do with media, traditional media, press releases, social media. And one of them says, if, if you're submitting an unreviewed preprint, consider its reception by the public. This is the point where you start to see the social pressure come to bear, isn't it? When you first release something, it's when people get jumped on that they very often either reverse their opinion or they say, oh, well, maybe I didn't. And they issue some sort of caveat. Uh, they don't express their findings as strongly or if they don't do anything to revise their findings, they simply just stop talking about it. They don't submit the the posters, and and so this is the point where uh, it it where you start to see social pressures when you release that into the environment, and you can see people recoil. So, what advice do you have, I, I suppose, for uh, someone who's going to produce something that that may make them socially undesirable for some time? It is the political correctness question. Uh, Political correctness uh, exists in medicine as much as it exists in the political realm and the media environment. Uh, If you contradict political correctness, you have to be ready for the social consequences. Uh, You know, there are Nobel Prize winners who couldn't get their papers published uh, and had to publish them in some third-class journal. Uh, You have to be ready for the consequences. You know, it is always easier to be part of the echo chamber. There's no question. That's what what will make you popular, that will give you all the invitations to speak. Uh, 
if you are not part of that, you have to live with it. Dr. Gleischer, I'd like you to conclude with our audience who's largely your peers, but it's going to be some of the folks that are executives of the genetics companies as well. And so we have many practice owners and physicians, but we also have a lot of folks that work on the quote industry side. Uh, How would you like to conclude our discussion today? We are in our respective medical fields all together. Like in in politics, I have a very hard time accepting the notion that that we are enemies, that that just because we do not share in opinions, uh, we we have to be antagonistic uh, to each other. Uh, I'm a capitalist. I strongly support uh, the profit motive. Uh, but I also like to believe that I have a, son- a social conscience uh, that mandates um, that I, as a physician, uh, set the interests of my patients at the very top <clears throat> of all of my considerations. And that just because it's the nature of the beast, uh, will at times uh, contradict other people's opinion. But that doesn't mean that we need to be enemies. That doesn't mean that uh, we cannot together find find solutions uh, that uh, will benefit all of us and most of us, our patients. Dr. Norbert Gleischer, thank you very much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.